the Old Testament. I love preaching from the Old Testament on Christmas and Easter. I like to show how Scripture harmonizes, how it how it sings to us the truth of Christ. And Zechariah is a linchpin book. It's very, it's not very popular. When's the last time you heard a message from Zechariah from anywhere but here, right? No, no, one person raised their hand. Nope, she was just changing a shirt. So uh, for her son, one person says, okay, yeah, I heard a message from Zechariah. She's lying. We don't believe you, Georgette. Um, you're really ruining my whole thing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, Zechariah is not a very popular book, though. It's not. It's about 14 chapters. It's right at the end of the Old Testament. But it is a must-read. It's something that we need to dive into and look at and study. And it's interesting as you read through this. And actually, I, I began a couple weeks ago when I was in Mexico. I would wake up every morning around 6.30, 7 o'clock. And I would go. We had this beautiful... Uh, what was the place called? I can't remember. It was a really nice place we got to stay, a finca. And I would go out every morning, and you, you couldn't relate to this right now because of outside, but while you were up here in 20-degree weather, I was down there in nice 75, warm breeze with my little Bible reading through Zechariah, and I was, I was preparing for this message today, and I was just loving it. It was beautiful. And, and the book of Zechariah just kind of came alive as I was reading it. And it's a fascinating book, like I said. When you, when you study it, when you read it, you get to chapter 14, and it begins to talk about this day for the Lord. And we're pretty familiar with the term day of the Lord, but this is the day for the Lord. And it kind of culminates in verse 9 of chapter 14. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. This is the final chapter of humanity that Zechariah is referring to here. He's talking to the end of the end of days. Well, that's pretty big piece of meat to chew off on, on an Easter Sunday, right? That's, that's kind of a lot to get into, but we're going to do that this morning. That's the day for the Lord. The day of the Lord is, is different. It's actually a time, that it, if you want to be technical, it actually begins at Easter. It's the time between Christ's ascension and the time uh, of Christ's return. And that's the day of the Lord. That's a time of punishment and judgment when the world is, is under God's wrath. And we're going to see that escalate all the more as we draw towards the end times. If you've read the book of Revelation or you were here for our study a couple of years ago, you know the, the slogan, one of my good friends from high school, when he was looking at Bible prophecy for the first time, he said, I guess the, if we were going to summarize Revelation and all these Bible verses, the best way to look at it is say, Smile, tomorrow will be worse. And you'll get that later. But that's kind of, kind of the, the, the idea there. But the day of the Lord is that. That's the day of punishment and judgment. The day for the Lord, that's a time of salvation and promise, of peace and blessing. And we're building towards that in, in this portion of Zechariah. In fact, what we're going to see is Zechariah is actually referring to one of the most famous, if not the most famous battle in all of history, the Battle of Armageddon. And you're sitting here going, okay, Easter Sunday, this was the day I decided to go to church, right? So, so let's begin to read. If you will stand with me, we're going to begin reading in verse 10. 
It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourn, as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning of Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves on that day. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Lord, I just pray that your word pierce our hearts today, that you speak to us, and that you be glorified through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. What we see happening in this text is a clear prophecy of the first arrival of Christ, the second arrival of Christ, and the purpose for both as he arrives. And if you're sitting here and you're, you're taking notes in your bulletin or you're writing things down, you want to take this home with you, this is the one thing I hope you take home and, and look back on throughout this week. All the weight of our sin is washed away in the fountain that flows from the cross of Christ. I'll say that again. All the weight of our sin is washed away in the fountain that flows from the cross of Christ. Have I mentioned I love preaching from the Old Testament on Easter and Christmas? This is good. This is big stuff happening in this little book. This little Old Testament 14 chapter book. The church fathers, if you study church history, they loved to go through the Old Testament and connect the dots for, to the New Testament. They loved to go in and say, hey, this is the Old Testament's prediction here. This is the fulfillment in Christ's life here. And they loved to do that. Didymus the Blind wrote an entire commentary. That's his name, Didymus the Blind. He wrote an entire commentary on Zechariah. And the entire thesis, if you will, of that commentary is simply that the fate of, of Jerusalem, the fate of Israel, the fate of Judah is all tied to the cross of Christ. And therefore, the fate of the whole world is tied to the cross of Christ. Zechariah was a, uh, was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai. Some of you have read about Haggai. I preached out of Haggai not that long ago. Haggai was a prophet who'd come along at the time when the Jewish exiles were returning to the, the promised land. And they were told, Haggai tells them, to rebuild the temple. To come in and rebuild their place of worship. But Zechariah comes along and he says, what's the point of rebuilding a temple if you've not rebuilt your hearts? What's the point of putting together a building if your insides aren't ready to receive him, if you're not ready to worship God? Zechariah was a bold prophet. In fact, he would preach things that today would probably get somebody killed. And in that day, that's what happened. Luke 11, Jesus tells us that, that 
Zechariah was actually martyred between the altar and the sanctuary because he preached with such boldness and he, he upset the wrong people. And yet he speaks of this fountain. The title of today's message is The Open Fountain. He speaks of this fountain that washes away our uncleanliness, washes away our sin, and that fountain flows from the cross of Jesus Christ. We read back in verse 10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, it's important that we understand context. We're just kind of jumping in to the middle of a chapter, and, and many of you know that I, I think context is very important. And the reason is because all of Scripture does bear witness of Christ. Jesus says this himself in John 5, 39. You search the Scriptures, but they, they speak of me. They, they point us to Jesus. And we look back at verses 8 and 9. It says, On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now you might read that and scratch your head, but when you get to Revelation 19 and, and the idea of the battle of Armageddon, that's where you see all the nations of the earth gathering around the holy city and ready to make war. And so we see this, this idea that in that moment, God will supernaturally protect Jerusalem. Now we read in, in the Old Testament sometimes, and, and people will say, well, that's not really for the Christian, that's for Israel. That's not really for us, that's for the, the nation of Judah and things like that. But even if that were the case, what we are seeing is God's heart on display, his love for people that he does wish to save us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the heart of God. So when we see God supernaturally saving Israel, we have to understand there's a purpose in that even for us, though we may not be Jewish, we may not be Israeli. And the text is prophetic in nature. We cannot look at New Testament prophecy and understand it without looking back at Old Testament prophecy. The two go hand in hand. You cannot understand how one works without looking at the functionality of how the other worked. When we look at prophecies that talk about the first time Jesus comes on the scene, we can't look at the prophecies of the second time and, and just disregard them or read them in a different way. We have to try and understand them in the same scope. They harmonize. They tell us the same message. And that's why I say context is so key. We wouldn't do this with any other book. You wouldn't pick up The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn without understanding the time in which it was written, without having read Tom Sawyer. If you did, you're going to read a paragraph in the middle of that book and go, why doesn't Jim drown this boy in the Mississippi? He's using some pretty rough words. You wouldn't do that. And yet people will do this with the Bible. They'll take a verse and they'll slap it on a t-shirt or a coffee mug because it makes me feel good is not the reason to just do that. 
We need to understand it in context. We need to understand what God is truly saying. And when we look back at verses 8 and 9, we see that Jerusalem is under siege, that there's a battle, that this is, like I said, the battle of Armageddon, and that's prophesied in Revelation 19. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. He's talking to birds and telling them they're going to have a meal. Why? Because these armies that have gathered against Israel are not, it's not going to be a battle. It's going to be an annihilation. When God shows up, when Jesus shows up, he completely eradicates the enemies of Israel. Now that doesn't sound like a, an Easter sermon, Pastor Jeff. This sounds like Kirk Cameron, Nicolas Cage, B-movie level stuff, right? Well, hang on a second, because when we look at the context when we look at verse 10, we see God is protecting Israel. And when they see that, when they look upon him whom they've pierced as their defender, something inside clicks. Something inside their heart begins to make sense. And the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them in grace and mercy. You see, in that moment, they are going to experience something that many of us have experienced, the full weight of their sin. They're going to understand what they did on that Passion Week and who exactly it was they crucified and who exactly it was that rose from the grave. And they're going to, in that moment, they're going to repent of their sin God in his own sovereign time is going to save his people Israel. And in that moment, salvation comes. We see this foreshadowed in Ezekiel 39, 29. I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now, simultaneously, they will notice, they will see, their hearts will change, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the house of David. That's their leadership. That's those who are, who are in authority of Israel. And the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's the common folks. That means everybody is going to receive it in that moment. This spirit of grace, and they're going to have pleas for mercy. This grace, that is God's favor poured out upon them. And the pleas for mercy, they're going to receive his mercy because they're going to cry out, and he's going to hear their prayers. He's going to hear their petitions the Old Testament prophets, when they would talk about God renewing his covenant with Israel, it always began with the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. It had to be done through the Holy Spirit's work. In Isaiah 59, 21, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouths from your children, your children's children, and so on. In releasing his Holy Spirit in this way, with grace and with mercy. In this exact moment, God demonstrates to the entire nation of Israel his pure, ultimate, passionate, fatherly love for them. That he is, that he is jealous for his people. And in that moment, if, we, if I understand the text, if we read it right, in that moment, it emotionally breaks them. It crushes them because in that moment, 
They look back and they know what has happened. They know what they've done so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Do you see the shifting in the pronouns there? God's talking about himself in the first person and the second person. Or, I'm sorry, third person. I can never get the pronouns exactly right. And Lolly's a teacher. She's laughing at me right now. But, but it's showing the deity of Christ. It's showing that, that he is that sacrifice. He is that atonement for us. John reads this, and he applies it at the cross. He says in John 19, 57, they'll look on him whom they've pierced. But in our text, in Zechariah, it's not just that they are, have pierced him, it's that he has been pierced and he's come back. There's a resurrection. And there's your Easter. He's not just a God who rose and left us. He's Emmanuel, God with us, and he's coming back for us someday. And God's destruction of, of Israel's enemies does not begin at the battle of Armageddon. It begins at the cross. It begins in that moment Isaiah predicted that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. When this prophecy of Zechariah is fulfilled in, in an instant, Israel knows Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is the promised Messiah, and he was crucified. And that veil, that hardness of heart that the Apostle Paul talks about begins to lift. It begins to fade away. He says in Romans 11, he says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may have mercy. In this moment, they are going to receive the mercy that we've received. Zechariah is saying that in this moment of supernatural victory, God fights for his people. God saves Israel. God protects Jerusalem. And whatever has kept the Jewish people from understanding this and accepting this, whether it's their pride, whether it's their own security in the law, whatever it may be, it begins to fall. And as it must be with all of us, as the nations rage, the hard heart has to soften. They begin to feel the weight of their sin. They begin to recognize their disobedience. They begin to see their rejection of Jesus. And in that moment, they begin to mourn for him. In the same way our sin pierces the very heart of God, they will mourn for the one who they pierced. They'll mourn as if for an only child, he tells us. They'll weep as for the firstborn. And you know, it's the first time in all of history the weight of Mount Calvary falls on Mount Zion. That it begins to grip their heart and they'll mourn like Pharaoh the morning after the first Passover. They'll weep like Jacob did as he clutched that multicolored, blood-stained robe. And they will feel the weight of their sin, as all who come to Christ must. 
In verse 11, it reads, On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Now, there's a double meaning here. Some people think that Hadad Ramon is referring to Baal worship, and, and Zechariah doesn't do that. Zechariah doesn't take a pagan thing and try to illustrate a, a godly thing. Hadad Ramon was likely a town, and this has a lot to do with the death of King Josiah. But it also, of course, it has something to do with the Valley of Megiddo, and I've already mentioned that, but we'll get to it. He says, on that day... On that day is mentioned 23 times in the book of Zechariah. In chapters 1 through 11, three times. From chapters 12 to 14, about 20 times. It's a common, it's a common saying among the prophets. Isaiah says it 20 times. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah. Zechariah uses it the most. He says, on that day. It's not the same day. He lists it out. On that day. It's a future event. The day of the Lord will last years. And so we read it, we understand it, that in that time, is what he's saying, in that time it will come to pass. And it will, it will come to pass because it's the very word of God. Amen? Good, everybody's still awake. These nations surround Israel. And, and have you ever wondered Why? When you, when you read the Left Behind books, why is it these, these nations want to surround Israel? What's the biblical foundation for that? Well, God tells us, Zechariah tells us. He says, behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the nations. In the next verse, verse 3, he says, on that day I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. That, that cup of staggering, that is actually a, a sign of judgment and that heavy stone, that is a crushing stone, one of conviction, the conviction of the world. You see, Israel, Jerusalem itself is the holy city. It is the last place on earth that will represent all of what takes place in this book. And all of what takes place in this book points us to Christ. And in that moment, in the last days, the world's going to have enough of that and they're going to say, let's wipe them off the map. And so the, king, the, the river Euphrates dries up. The kings of the east march. They, they surround Jerusalem on that day. But on that day, God protects God defends. Jesus shows up and many in Israel will repent on that day. On that day, the weight of repentance hits their hearts and they mourn. And of all cities on planet earth, Jerusalem has the, the right to mourn as they should for what they've done. Matthew tells us, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And they crucified the man who said that. Proving his point. Jerusalem has reason to mourn. The city of David where the city of kings and the temple is there, the temple being the heart of their worship. Mount Zion, where they killed the prophets and they crucify the Lord. And she will mourn. 
In fact, the word mourn there in the Hebrew, it actually, it means to mourn as in a funeral procession, to wail in the streets, to sing a lament for the dead. They are mourning as if someone has died. He did. But the joy is he rose three days later. They also, this is also referring to the death of King Josiah. King Josiah died in the plain of Megiddo. And all Israel, this is 2 Chronicles 35, all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah and their laments to this day. Josiah was the last godly king. He was the last good king of Judah. And Jesus is the rightful, good, godly king. And yet, they'll weep for Josiah, but for Jesus, they cry, crucify. They cry, give us Barabbas. And in this moment, the weight of those actions hits the, the heart of worship, hits Jerusalem, and they mourn. The king died, and they recognize it was their sin that made it necessary. Jerusalem has rejected their godly king. And yet he saves them. And in the same way, in our sin, we reject the godly king. We reject Christ. Our sin is a reason to mourn. The things that separate us from God, the things that keep us from holiness, they are reason to wail and weep, but yet God still saves God still is faithful to forgive. We read in verses 12 and 13, and these are some of those fun Old Testament verses that get really repetitive. So please, if your eyes start to glaze over, just snap your fingers. Do what you got to do to stay awake, okay? The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. Everybody's good? Okay. All right. <laughs> Izzy's up here and she goes, yes. <laughs> She's good. She's awake. The first thing we have to notice is the land mourns. The very earth itself is mourning the sin of the people. You understand that the earth is cursed because of sin. God told Adam, because of you, cursed is the ground in Genesis 3.17. In Isaiah 24, it says, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Hosea says, the Lord, the, I'm sorry, the land mourns. Paul tells us in Romans 8.22, creation has been groaning all because of sin. Because bloodshed follows bloodshed, Hosea tells us. And each family by itself, that means each individual and each, and corporately there must be repentance. And he says the wives by themselves. Ladies, I'm not going to forget about you, but we're going to move on for just a second. I'll, I'll circle back to this, okay? He says the family of Nathan, and that ties into the family of David. Nathan was David's son. In fact, when you read Luke's genealogy in Luke 3.31, Nathan is who is one of the ancestors to Jesus himself. Those who had the Messiah 
crucified were part of the royal family. They were part of the royal guard. They were the ones who were supposed to be rulers and leaders like Herod and the religious leaders who were stewards in the rightful king's place. This is what that's referring to. But out of jealousy, out of jealousy, they knew who Jesus was and yet they wanted him dead. They wanted him crucified. The family of Levi, the Shimeites, this is the priestly sect Numbers 3.18 tells us Shimei was a son of Levi. These are the descendants of those who wanted Jesus dead the most, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They have the blood on their hands from their ancestors. And yet in this moment, they will be forced to recognize who he was and plea for forgiveness and desire God's grace. The descendants of Caiaphas and Annas and all those who, who struck him on that day will weep for what they've done. In verse 14, and the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves, all the other families, the royal family, the priestly family, and all Israel will mourn and their wives by themselves. Well, here we are. This this emphasizes the genuineness of their repentance. You understand, I know there was a TV movie years ago made that showed Caiaphas's wife as this really jealous, upstart woman. We don't really see her in Scripture. She's the connecting factor between Annas, the high priest, and, and Caiaphas. She's the, Annas's daughter and Caiaphas's wife, and that's probably why they were able to both be high priests at the same time and not kill each other, literally, why they were able to get along. But there's nothing in the text that tells us she had anything to do with Jesus' trial or crucifixion. And yet her daughters will mourn and reap the sin that, that her, their family committed. They're going to understand the great sin had happened and they're going to repent. And church, I hope you understand this this morning. Your husband's sin may infect your household wives, but his repentance does not save you as an individual. Husbands, your wife's repentance does not mean you have no sin of your own to mourn. You have your own reason to repent. Your husband, your wife, your dad, your mom, your son, your daughter, their holiness does not save you. When we read the Apostle Paul, when we, when we see what he has to say, it's an individual salvation. Now, someone might say, well, what about the Philippian jailer in Acts 16? Paul said, if, you're, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, you and your household. The fact is, when they saw dad's repentance, when they heard his testimony, they were saved. It does not mean his salvation saved the entire home. They had to have their own encounter with Christ, their own repentance of sin. And if you do not mourn your own rejection of Christ, he does not abide in you. If you do not feel the weight of sin, he does not abide in you. Paul makes this very clear in Romans 8. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
Nowhere in there does he say somebody else's salvation saves you. It's yours. Are you walking with Christ? Are you submitting to him? It can only be the testimony that you hear and, and, and becomes your testimony. Your, your changed heart. And you can believe all you want, but belief must drive us to repent. Belief has to change us or it's not a saving faith. There are a lot of people who say, I believe in Jesus, but their belief doesn't change their heart. And I like how Steve Lawson says it. Many people, many people will miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance from their heart to their brain, because they know it's true, but it's not enough to change their heart. James tells us even demons believe, but they have enough sense to shudder. If a person believes and it doesn't make them change, then it's a dead belief. In our text, Israel sees God's salvation and it drives them to wailing and mourning and repenting because they are so very aware of their sin. But no matter how great that weight is, no matter how, how much that hurts, there is hope. There is joy to be had. He says, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That day of repentance becomes a day of redemption. It becomes a day of salvation for those who have found that fountain. Repentance in mourning, that is our response to the truth of Christ. But that cleansing fountain, that salvation that happens in that moment, that is God's response to our repentance. There's a beautiful hymn from 1772. Some of you say, well, Pastor Jeff, you like those old hymns. Yeah, I do. Because listen to this. These are just the lyrics from William Cooper. It says, it's titled, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's beautiful. This idea of a cleansing fountain, if you're in Christ, that is a beautiful thing you understand. And if you're not in Christ, that is what your heart is craving. That's what you're yearning for. Ecclesiastes tells us that he has put eternity in the hearts of man. That's what you're longing to fill. That's what you're seeking to satisfy. And in the Jewish mindset, the pre-Christian Judaic mindset, this cleansing fountain didn't exist. They didn't understand that. They had ceremonial bathing, which would make them physically clean to go into the temple and worship. But this was a different kind of cleansing Zechariah is talking about. It washes away sin. How could that be possible? It's unknown, but it's promised. 
Ezekiel 36, 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. It was promised in Ezekiel, but it's illustrated earlier in Zechariah 3. It says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. You see, this fountain opens from the house of David as it's for the house of David. And it flows from Jerusalem to the entire world. It's from the, the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah. And it's offered to all, if only, if only we would wash in that fountain and come under the blood of Christ. We could sing just like the psalmist. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever because we are cleansed from sin. We're made whole. This idea of sin, by the way, it's the Hebrew word hatat, and it means an offense, disobedience. It's a cause to become unclean. That's what he's referring to here. And that uncleanness, that's a ritual impurity. The Hebrew word is nadah, and it's, it's typically associated with idolatry or, or uncleanness of, of body in a different sense that's not tolerated in the presence of God's holiness. And the message is very clear. God wants to cleanse us. God wants to wash us and make us right and make us holy as he is. You say, well, I, I think God just should love me the way that I am. And he does. And you know what? I, I love my son just the way that he is. But a year ago, he was still in diapers. And sometimes he'd get messy. And I didn't want to leave him that way. I wanted to cleanse him. Every parent should be saying amen, right? You know what I'm talking about. All the way up the back, people, okay? And you wash him, you cleanse him. Why? Because I hate him and I don't like the, the, the mess? No, because I love him and I want to make him right. I want to make him clean. And that is God's fountain washing us clean from our sin and our filth and our uncleanness. On that day, this is Zechariah 14, 8. It says, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over the earth on that day. The Lord will be one and his name one. In that day, on that day, what about Today? Do you understand the full weight of your sin can be washed away in the fountain that is flowing from the cross of Christ? Do you understand that the reason for mourning can be the very thing that drives you to Jesus Christ today? To be rid of that burden of sin and shame and despair. That all that weight of sin can be washed away in the fountain that flows from the cross of Christ. I began this message by saying Zechariah was murdered, martyred for his message. Because the message repent and mourn and, and be sorry for your sin is not a popular message. I guarantee there's not a lot of pastors preaching on repentance this morning. But it's important and it's vital to salvation. 
There are many who say, and, I, and I'm just as guilty, come to Jesus and have joy. Come to Jesus and be made right with God. And that's true, but unless there's repentance, it's a half-truth. There's something you're missing. From great sorrow, the sorrow of repentance, comes the joy of forgiveness. We don't like sorrow. We don't like to be made to feel bad. I want to feel comfortable. I don't even know why I'm wearing a suit jacket today. These things are horrible. I feel like boa constrictors are all over my body, but you know what? I'm doing it. We don't like that stuff. <laughs> We're a nation that doesn't like to blush. Whenever grown men dance for little boys at the library and things like that. We don't even like to be made to feel uncomfortable about those things, right? So we just turn our head. We don't look at it. Instead, the Christian should be saying, no, it's time to repent. Repentance must happen. We must understand the full weight of our sin and turn from it. If we are to have that sin washed away in the fountain that flows from Christ. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back up. Today, maybe you're here and maybe you're watching online and you've never repented. You've never said, I don't even know what repentance is. It is a changing of your mind that changes your life. It's coming to Christ and confessing your sin. It's saying, I've made mistakes. I've rebelled against God. I've chosen myself first over Christ. And I've done these things and, and it's for me. It's selfishness or it's idolatry or it's greed or whatever. And coming to Christ and saying, but now I need Jesus to change me. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you have and you're sitting there and you're saying, well, I have done this before, but my life's gone off track. Repentance is getting back on track. When I was about 12 years old, my church hired a pastor. His name was Roger Willis. And I wouldn't be the man today I am without Roger. And I'll never forget when he was, we were around a campfire one night and we were talking and I said something about I didn't have a great testimony because I always grew up in church. And he looked at me and he said, Jeff, you know the day I got saved, I was hungover. I'd been out late the night before with women I didn't know. I'd been doing a lot of stuff I shouldn't have been doing. But my mom got me to come to church. And I felt for the first time the weight of my sin. And he said, I was so red-faced and, and resisting and trying to, to fight that, that Holy Spirit. He said, don't ever ask for my kind of testimony. It doesn't matter where you're from or what you're going through or where you've been. He still loves you. He still died for you. And he's still calling you to repent. On that day could be today for you. That God washes you in his fountain and cleanses you. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to worship to close this morning. We'll say a closing prayer. But if that's you, if you're here and you're saying, I, I feel this, I know this, I need this. I challenge you to find a place to pray. Maybe, maybe right where you are. If you don't want to pray alone, grab somebody's hand. Say, will you pray with me? Pray for me. That's one of the joys of being in a church. You don't have to do this alone. You have people around you who care about you, who want to pray with you.
But as we close, we're going to sing. I would challenge you to find that place and, and be washed in the open fountain this morning.